So why don't you guys open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to continue through our year in Ephesians. Today we're going to be covering a grand total of two and a half verses. Two and a half verses. 17 through 19a. I didn't put the A up there because I thought that would confuse you. This last Thanksgiving, uh, if you can't tell, those are turkeys. Uh, we were in Haiti with the Withams and um, very, very blessed. And our kids sent us pictures of their Thanksgiving turkey craft that Uncle Dallas and Auntie Whitney helped them uh, put together. And each of the feathers on these turkeys has something for which they are thankful. Simple things, important things like Legos. And mom and dad, family, friends, our pet cat, Mochi. Simple things. It's great to see the heart of a child. And this was especially poignant for me as we were in the midst of Haiti. And uh, I realized in just seeing this picture how much I take things for granted. How much I am not thankful when I'm immersed in the selfishness and materialism and the autonomous nature of our culture here in America. It's amazing to me how thankful I become for simple things like clean drinking water and showers and a cool breeze, a certain level of safety for my wife, for my kids, and for each of you. Things that I'm not usually thankful for. Thanksgiving is not something that is cultivated in our culture. As we talked about last week, we have one day that we focus on it. We stuff ourselves and the next day we say, okay, I'm no longer thankful. Let's go to the sales so I can get as much more stuff as I want. It's pervasive. We're always looking for the next big thing. The better relationship, the better technology, the better deal, the better program. We are the throwaway society. We throw away possessions, we throw away relationships, we throw away commitments. And the ironic part about all of it is that while we are the least thankful in the world, in my estimation, I have no empirical evidence on that, but while we are the least thankful, we are also the most materially blessed. Isn't that interesting? It seems that the nature of sin within us is that the more we have, the easier it is for us to become disenchanted. The more we have, the easier it is for us to become disenchanted. And as followers of Christ, I think we must admit this truth about ourselves in order to fight to stay in that place of thanksgiving and gratefulness that draws us closer to Jesus. And so I think today's text is going to be really helpful to us as disciples of Jesus in combating this attitude of ingratitude. And in this chapter, Paul has asked us as a church to cast our eyes upon Christ because in so doing, we will be thankful with Jesus in our midst and as the focus. We've been talking about how the first mark of a healthy church is what? Everybody say it out loud there. Jesus at the core core of everything that the church does. But then Paul begins describing what we are calling the second mark of a healthy church, and this one is an attitude of thanksgiving. I could say an attitude of gratitude, but then I'd feel really corny, so I left it at thanksgiving, okay? An attitude of thanksgiving. Last week, we looked at the reason for this attitude of thanks, and Paul spent uh, verses 3 through 14 praising God for his goodness and plan. He begins in verse 3 with, blessed be God, and the actual literal translation is, God is praiseworthy or worthy of praise. And as a good God and father that blesses his children, God has lavished. Everybody say lavished. That's not a word that a six foot ten dude with a beard usually uses, right? Lavished. 
But God has lavished his love upon us. That's how good of a God he is. He's poured out his love upon us and given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And these blessings that he gave us, as we covered in the last few weeks, they cover all time. They're past because he redeemed us by his blood. He predestined us to be his children. They're here in the present in that he's given us the Holy Spirit that unifies us. He's knit our hearts together as an inheritance for God. And through his spirit, he teaches us in the moment. And his blessings are also in the future. That one day he will unite all things under himself at the end of days and bring us into a place of restoration and fullness of a knowledge of him. And because of these amazing blessings, Paul had reason to give thanks. Do we have reason to give thanks this morning? The same reasons that Paul did. And so last week, we looked at this and we saw that these are the reasons that Paul gives thanks. But Paul actually does something else. In the midst of this reasoning, he also erupts in thanks for the people because he sees their faith worked out in love. He sees the blessings and knows them, but he also sees them take place in the people. And that mutual love that the local churches had for one another caused Paul to cry out in thanks. And we saw this in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And you see, Paul models for us a great truth here. That we'll, while we must start with mental understanding of all these truths that we read, it has to play out in the faithfulness of the Spirit in our lives. Practically, it has to become true or else our mental knowledge is worthless. And so, in his next statement, he prays for the people of Ephesus that they might understand and know the fullness of the blessings in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look here, and we're going to read what it says in Ephesians 1. Start with me in 15, and we're going to go through 21. For this reason, all the blessings, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. There's the faith being worked out in love. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We look at this and we see that Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches. His prayer is to know the gift of the life of Jesus. To know the gift of the life of Jesus. This is what Paul's prayer is for them. Now, if you follow with me, you might say, Hans, I don't see that here. We'll get there. Just keep following with me. All the blessings that are talked about in this section are centered around Jesus. And in a few weeks, we will be celebrating Christmas. And every year, I come to you and I say, guys, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the presents and the food and the decorations and the tree? Or are all those things means 
to celebrate the truth, which is Jesus Christ. That he came to this earth, that he loved us so much. We're going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus. Think about this, guys. The king of the universe left his throne to come amongst us. And scripture tells us that in that birth, God stepped into flesh and he literally, physically dwelt here. The fullness of God was contained in that human body. Now that doesn't mean God was limited from being elsewhere, but in a sense, his fullness was there in that container of Jesus of Nazareth. Just as the fullness of the glory of God was contained in the tent of the tabernacle or the temple. And over the next 30 years, Jesus walked in a life much like yours and mine, yet without sin against the Father. He never broke relationship with the Father. He was beloved by the Father, and he perfectly loved in response. And around 30, he began a three-year ministry that gave a glimpse to the world of the inbreaking kingdom of God, bringing righteousness and justice to the people around him. And this was what the Jews had longed for and hoped for. Jesus came that humanity might experience, might know God the Father. God the Father loves you so much that he didn't just send people to talk about him. He showed up at humanity's house so we could experience him, so we could know him. He came that we might understand in practical experience who the Father is. Well, after three years of ministry, you guys know the story. The religious leaders had had enough and they offered Jesus up to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on a cross as a common criminal. And in that death, Jesus was the sacrifice on the altar that accepted the wrath of the Holy Father God for your sin and for mine. In so doing, he paved the way for relationship with the Father to be restored. That transaction that occurred, Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins, is the gift of the life of Jesus. It's the gift of the life of Jesus. And if you're here today and you have for, not, for some reason not accepted that gift of the life of Jesus, that sacrifice that he gave for you, the Bible says that your sins are not forgiven and you're alienated from your creator God that loves you and has called you to reconcile yourself to him. So I want to tell you that today you can step into relationship with him. During worship, I'll be in the back and so will Patrick, one of the other elders, and we would love to talk with you about what it means to walk as a disciple of Jesus. You can have that forgiveness and that reconciliation today. All you have to do is ask the Lord for it. He's paved the way. But secondly, the gift of the life of Jesus, while it must be based on that mental understanding, that is the core. You can't get past that. There's more than just the forgiveness of sins in the gift of the life of Jesus. Because when you receive that forgiveness, you're also given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit starts to work in you and help you to understand who God is by his holy word and by the community of faith. And it reconciles you. He, the Holy Spirit, he reconciles you to God and he begins the process of empowering you to walk as Christ walked. One of the biggest lies that the enemy put it, has put into the church that I, I preach against and talk against constantly is this idea that well, I will always be the same sinner I was when God saved me. Guys, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls you to more. He calls you to more. And he's given you the power to do so. And that's at the heart of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians. Let me show you what I mean. Turn back with me. I know you guys are sick of me taking you back there, but let's go to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. You guys are really familiar with it, so I'm going there because, man, it's a good reference point. Isaiah 11. 
and take a look with me there. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember, Jesse was the father of King David, and King David was the lineage of Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, question and answer time. Get yourselves ready for an answer here. Who is this talking about? Good job. Jesus. Jesus was given the spirit, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, and the fear of the Lord. Do you realize that when you are baptized and repent from your former sins and enter into relationship with Jesus by his mercy and grace, you are given the exact same spirit? Well, Jesus must have had like the the platinum model. I've got kind of like the, you know, bubblegum and tape model, right? He must have had the diamond status. I have more like the, I don't know, dirt status, right? I got that kind of spirit. He had the fullness of the spirit. But that's not what the Bible says, guys. And that is why, go back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, that is why Paul is asking and praying for this in verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17 of Ephesians. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this isn't talking about another spirit of wisdom. It's the same spirit of wisdom. The same Holy Spirit that descended upon the fully God-man Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit that is in us individually and corporately. Corporately. That word corporate, it comes from the Latin word corpus. It's the word for body. So when you say corporate, it means the body. The Spirit dwells within the body of Christ. And so we have him individually and corporately. And so Jesus said this about the Spirit. Look up at the screens with me. This is John 14, verses 15 through 21. John 14, 15 through 21. I'll read it to you here. He said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who's that? Who's the helper? Holy Spirit. Very good. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. See, it's that same spirit talked about in Isaiah and talked about here in Ephesians. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Now, here's the kicker, guys. He's not just talking about the second advent when he returns. He's talking about you will see me when the Holy Spirit is amongst you. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
You see, the helper is sent, the Holy Spirit, and he dwells in each of us and therefore also surrounds us, not as a pantheistic force like in Star Wars, but do you know how the Spirit is with you right now? Look to your left and look to your right. The Spirit dwells in you and it dwells in them and therefore it is with you. We have now become the body of Christ in the world with the Holy Spirit incarnate, which means in the flesh, in us. Just as Jesus had the Spirit incarnate in his container, not any one of us is as full of the Spirit, in a sense, as Jesus was. It takes the entire church body to be the Spirit incarnate. And so then we become the hands and feet of God in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. He said, you will see me. I will love him and manifest myself to him. That manifestation is the body of Christ, the church. And that's why Christ said to his disciples after he resurrected to receive the Spirit. And he formed, in a sense, the church in that statement. Look at John 20, 21 through 23. He said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. To do what? To be the incarnate Spirit of God amongst the world. No one of us is like Jesus. But as the Spirit dwells in the body of Christ globally and locally, we are incarnate Spirit of God. And he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Notice this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He's giving the apostolic church the ability to go preach the gospel, to call people to repentance and submission to Christ. And as they do so, not to give them salvation, that only comes from Jesus, but to affirm for them or deny for them what has already taken place, that they are saved or are not saved. And so this Holy Spirit body, the church, is sent on behalf of Christ. And each local manifestation of the church, mission, and every other church in Salem and Kaiser and around the world are to be the Holy Spirit of God in the flesh, giving a physical understanding of Christ to the world. Not just a place where a pastor preaches knowledge, and then we think about it and then go home and do nothing about it, but a place where the practical experience of knowing God exists. The Father is giving us, the church, to the world that we might know the gift of the life of Christ. Now, this is so counter to what we understand. Let's look back at Ephesians for a second at verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Now, there are reason, the reason that this is so hard for us to understand is because I think there are two false theologies that are rampant in the church that cause us, two false gospels in a sense, that cause us to not understand what I've just described to you. That the truth is, is that we're to experience Christ within the community of the Spirit. Here's the first. The first false gospel that hinders our ability to know and by no in quotes, K-N-O-W, I mean experience God, is the first one, the gospel of mental ascent. The gospel of mental ascent. Through our Western eyes, based on the Enlightenment, 
We look at words like wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and enlightened, and we relegate them only to a cognitive function. We make them cerebral. He's talking about knowing up here in your brain. Paul must be talking about cognition. And thus we make Jesus and uh, uh, salvation into a formulaic way that we get salvation. Think about Jesus as being Savior, say a prayer to that effect, and you're saved. That's evangelicalism. We've made the church a place where you come to study rather than experience love and service to and from one another. Remember when church gatherings used to be called church services? Why did we name them that? Because it's the place you went to serve, not be served. It's the place you went to experience the generosity and compassion of God. But these words here, wisdom and revelation and enlightenment, they mean so much more than just cognition. It does include cognition, but Paul is using these words because the mystery religions that the Ephesians belonged to and that Paul was opposing were built around the idea of having special mental ascent, special mental knowledge. And if you had enough mental knowledge, what would happen is you would enter into a mystical experience of God. This was what the core of the mystical religions were all about. And if you were able to do that, then you could claim to be of a higher spiritual caste. You guys know what I mean by caste system? So if I think hard enough and understand God enough, then I'm going to have this mystical experience internally, and then I can claim to other people that I have understood and been enlightened. And that was the core of those mystery religions. But none of it was material or physical because those mystery religions thought that the material and physical was bad and gross. Similarly, we in the church today often believe we can think our way to being more spiritual. You ever notice how churches just pile Bible study upon Bible study upon Bible study, right? If I go to more Bible studies, then I'm more holy. Well, what if you just had one on Sunday mornings and then you focused on that the entire week, acting it out? We think in the church we can get our thoughts and emotions in check, and then if we do that, God will reward us with a mystical experience. But think with me about the word know, K-N-O-W. In the Hebrew, it can mean mental ascent, but it can also mean, and much more often means, understanding through practical experience. For example, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Hey, honey, you look good over there. Let me think for a second about conceiving. That's not what that means. It means practical experience. To know your wife means you have carnal knowledge. You experience something, okay? Think about what it is in our English language to say to someone, I know what that feels like. You're saying to them, I have experienced the same thing. The word know, K-N-O-W, doesn't always mean mental assent. And the word says that Jesus became physical wisdom for us. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Sophia, that's the word in the Greek, wisdom from God. He became physically wisdom from God. His life was the physical revelation of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10 says. 
Jesus' life became revelation. And this is a, one that you all know. Jesus became the knowledge of the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Jesus isn't talking about a mental ascent there. He's talking about relationship. Do you know them? I'm really cautious lately when people say, hey, do you know so-and-so? I'll say, oh, I've heard of their name. I know of them. I don't know them. In our language and society and culture, it's so easy. Oh, I love them. I love you. We got to be careful with that word love. The biblical definition of love is to lay your life down for the person, not just I have positive feelings towards them. That makes them an acquaintance, not someone you love. The wisdom, plan, and knowledge of God became encapsulated in the physical person of Jesus so that we could know, K-N-O-W, God, so that we could experience God. But see, this bad theology that's mixed into Christianity says that the only way to truly know God is to have a personal mystical experience in the feelings in mind. Now, I don't want to dismiss that because I believe the Bible definitely speaks to that. But to say that it is the primary or only way that we experience God is false. If we believe that, then what it does is it leaves us with an addictive high centered on dopamine receptors of our brain that causes us to chase that same high to different experiences and different conferences. Uh, There are tons of Christians that I know that are conference chasers. Right? They go from conference to conference to conference to conference to conference because they're always trying to get that next new high. Because sticking in one place, well, that doesn't really, it's like the honeymoon phase versus actual marriage. Right? But see, what Christ built into the church is that the experience of knowing God happens within the local body. One another loving each other. But instead of that, what happens is if we jump to the next high, we leave a wake of damaged people as we're trying to go find the next best feeling. And so how can we physically and tangibly encounter and experience the Spirit of God? Well, here you go. Question and answer time. Get ready for this one. You ready? You ready? Okay, let me try that again. Are you ready? Okay, now you're ready. Okay, good. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Yeah. You want to experience God? Go to the temple. What's the temple of God? Us. It's interaction with one another. It's loving of one another. You want to experience the wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God in the midst? Interact with one another. Love one another. This is what John says in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, if you love the Father, who else do you love? One another. You literally cannot state, don't ever do this again. I'm I'm, I'm correcting you here if you've ever done this. Yeah, I love God, but I don't really love the church. I love God, but I don't really feel called to love the people in my church. You cannot do that. It's not possible. It's like the Jews in John 8 who said to Jesus, yeah, we love the Father, but we don't like you. And he goes, you can't, what? No, like, you can't say you love Yahweh and you hate me. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit of the God you say you love is dwelling in one another. So if you say, I love the Father and the Spirit while he's in heaven, but I don't like the Spirit when he's in you, 
you don't actually love the Father. And he continues, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. One of those commandments is to love one another, and it's not burdensome. Well, that's the first false gospel that we see. The second false gospel that we see that holds us back from this understanding of experiencing God within the body of Christ is the gospel of what we're calling comfortable. I started out calling it the gospel of comfort, but then uh, some folks who went over the teaching with me last night said, you know, he is the God of comfort, so let's make it comfortable, and I like that a lot better. The false gospel of comfortable. And what this teaches is that Jesus gave his life so that you don't have to. Jesus suffered so that you can live in comfort. And Jesus was poor so you can be rich. It's a faux prosperity gospel. But the true gospel calls us to take on the life of Christ individually and corporately so that we can manifest the good news to the world in action. We are to join Christ in his life and death and resurrection. Here's just two verses I'll give you. I could give you a ton, but just to get the picture, here's Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Is that good news? Amen, Amen, right? Provided we suffer with him. Is that good news? In order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm so glad that those people go and serve Jesus while I'm sitting here in my comfortable life. They're called to do it. I'm not. You're absolutely called to do it. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, mental ascent, but also, what's that word? Suffer for his sake. Now immediately when we hear this, we go, okay, well, what is he talking about? Well, I think of Matthew 16.25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I've taken an informal poll over the years in my own little pea brain, and here's what I have found. In all the people that I've talked to about this verse, what most Americans' minds immediately go to is this. I've got to lay down my material possessions. I've got to sell everything and move under the Burnside Bridge. That's what God's asking me to do. Now, why is that? Well, it's because materialism is our idol in the United States. And so we think we've got to lay our possessions down. Well, in a sense, you do. We're called to be generous and giving. But I submit to you that Jesus did very much more intend relational over material. How do I know this? Well, remember John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See how that works together? Well, how do we lay down our life, Jesus, so we can be saved? Well, follow my commandments. They're not burdensome. What's your commandment? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. To love one another as yourself. Oh, so if I lay down my life for my friend in love, I'm fulfilling what you just talked about. Absolutely. Laying down your desires, your wants, your opinions, your ego for the good of who? The other person. If we embrace the gospel of comfortable, we will never enter into the hard conversations or the vulnerability or the potential conflict that may bring intimacy that is needed for us to understand and experience the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the forgiveness of God, and the commitment of God. We can know that and experience it now and here among us. 
And so let's get our minds back to the track of Ephesians here. Paul was not just talking about mental ascent, that they would know in their brains. He was saying, I pray that you would know because of your faith worked out in love, that because of the Holy Spirit bringing revelation in the way that the Holy Spirit drives you to love one another, that you might know and understand these things about Jesus. And then he goes on to give us three things, three practical experiences that he hopes for us to have in the midst of the church. So we're calling these the three experiences or the knows, K-N-O-Ws, that Paul desires for the church. Okay? First, he desires for us to have an experience of the hope to which he has called us. The hope to which he has called us. Now, hope in our culture means something like power of positive thinking. It is cerebral. I remember being little and hoping that mom and dad would buy me the Lego set I wanted. Right? You remember those Christmases? If I just think about it enough and stare at the Sears catalog enough, it'll appear under the tree. Right? Remember those days? But how do you get called to that kind of hope? The hope to which he has called us. Well, this calling is from God, and what he has called us to is hope. He's invited us into it. And I think so many Christians believe when they become Christians that hope that they're talking about is the cerebral kind. It's the power of positive thinking. And that's why I found so many Christians think that the heart of Christianity is pasting on the smile and being positive all the time. Well, I fail miserably at that. So for years, I thought, man, I'm a terrible Christian because, like, I'm sad sometimes and I'm happy sometimes, and I really stink at pasting on that grin. You know me, right? I wear everything on my sleeves. Well, the reality is, is God isn't calling us to be positive thinkers all the time. The hope he's calling us to is about more than that. And unfortunately, in the world today, you have entire ministries built around hoping in hope. Hoping in hope. But the hope God calls us to is way more tangible than that. What is the end of all things that he speaks to here? Take a look with me there right at Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 10. What is the hope, the eventual plan of all things? The plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our hope is unity. Our hope is reconciliation. Go with me just a little bit to the right to Ephesians 2.11 and look there. It'll tell us what hope is. Paul will define it for us. Ephesians 2.11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. To have no hope means that you were alienated from God and you were outside of the covenant people of God. So to have hope means what? You've been reconciled to God and you've been reconciled to the covenant people of God. That's what hope is. The hope he calls us to is unity, peace, shalom, and restoration. And Paul calls the church, the Ephesian church and the church of today, to be a preview of that eventual restoration. That desire of Paul is what motivates him to write the entire second half of his letter. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. You will hear me preach this a million more times in the next year. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, what's that word? Calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So to experience the hope to which he has called us is to experience reconciliation and unity here in the midst of the church. That the outside world, outside the church, might see what that eventual hope is. Dear flock, this is not a suggestion for us. It's not a suggestion for when we feel like being unified. It's a command of the Apostle Paul and of God himself, that we be driven not by personal self-interest or by transient feelings that go up and down depending upon the environment or by emotions, but by God's desire to use the church to display the power of reconciliation. That's what we're called to be motivated by. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians starting in chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 14. Second Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, that's not a mental ascent. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How do you receive the grace of God in vain? You hear it. You tuck it away and you go about your business. The gospel of mental ascent. The love of Christ controls us. Paul desires for the church to experience the hopefulness of reconciliation within the kingdom of God by their faith worked out in love. That they might know that hope practically and experientially. He wants us to experience that hope. I desire for every one of you in here to experience that hope. Well, secondly, the second thing he calls us to there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Go back there with me to Ephesians and look at it there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now Patrick did such a great job teaching on this topic even though the power went out. He taught on this from Ephesians 1:13 and 14, so I don't have to add much. But again, in our Western materialistic culture, we hear inheritance, and what do we think? Possessions, money, mansions, houses, cars, toys, comfort, security, retirement, 401k. Okay? But the reality here is that Paul wants them to experience the down payment of what will be received in the fullness of eternity future. And the heritage of the Lord, as, as Patrick showed us, is Jesus and the saints. It's the household of faith, the children and creation that he has adopted and restored. So when we go, man, yeah, I can't wait to inherit the, the inheritance of the Lord. Well, it's the Lord. Do we already have the Lord? Amen. Absolutely. And the saints, do we already have the saints? Amen. Yeah. How do you practically experience that inheritance? Is it Marcel's church in Burkina Faso? Partially, but majority, who is it? Us, right here. Now, the creation needs to be restored, and we're waiting for that, but that's the inheritance we get is Jesus and one another. And so what this means for us is our inheritance is the kingdom, the king, and his people. It's kind of like this. It's like when I come home after a long day, and my beautiful daughter, Kara, runs up and snuggles up to me. She says, Daddy, I've missed you, and she starts cuddling me, and all of a sudden, my boys, they run up, right? And they're a little bit more, you know, rough, and they come running up, and they dog pile, and they start snuggling too. And what does Kara do as any good four-year-old daughter does? She goes, no, my daddy. And she pushes him away. I want to experience the father. The rest of you get away. Now I have to remind her in that moment, honey, for me to be your daddy means that John and Jaden are also your brothers. And my heart is broken and so grieved when she thinks I'm okay with her pushing away her brothers and sisters. The thing that makes my heart sing and rejoice is to watch them cuddle each other while they're cuddling me. Just take a moment and apply that to this church. Are we making the Lord's heart sing? Or is he looking at us grieved because we're motivated by self-interest? We experience the down payment of the fullness of the inheritance when we see the relational restoration and covenant commitment that comes in the midst of the body of Christ. That is how we can come to understand and know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Well, the third thing, lastly, that we see Paul praying for us is that we might know, K-N-O-W, and experience the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. As we will see next week when we go through the remainder of this section, the focus here is on the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ. The cross or the atoning death of Christ is given only a sideways glance in this next section, in verses 19 through 23. But that does not mean its importance is negated, but it does mean that Paul was trying to get their mind on the idea of Christus Victor, victory in Christ, the victorious Christ, and not just the atoning Christ. 
He was trying to get them to understand that Christ brings life, that he didn't just die for their sins. And specifically, he's looking at what Jesus' resurrection established. Look there with me at the next couple of verses. Look at verse uh, 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's enthronement. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's kingdom. He's looking at the resurrection establishing the kingdom. In the West, we are so cross-focused that we forget that Jesus rose and ascended and was enthroned. I hear Protestants all the time making fun of Catholics. Oh, didn't, why are you wearing that, that crucifix? Didn't Jesus get off that cross? Well, guys, go to most Protestant churches on a Sunday. What do they focus on? The cross. Should we stop doing that? No, not at all. But we should share in the resurrection and the ascension and the coming kingdom and the kingdom that's been inaugurated. For now, how can we know mentally and understand experientially the greatness of of his power that resurrected Jesus from the grave and enthroned him and established his kingdom? Well, the answer is through the transformation of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church. That his kingdom reign and the law of love would come and bear among us and between us right now. As we observe the people of God operating no longer by the laws of self, but by the laws of love, we begin to understand what the kingdom looks like. That from death, God can bring life. Guys, have you ever experienced that in the church where you're in conflict with somebody and you know it's not going well and like it's going to tank and you're just, you're waiting for the shoe to drop and you're going, oh my goodness, this is not going to go well. And then they come in and they sit down and they say, well, I was reading the word this morning. Man, I was convicted and I just, I want us to reconcile and work it out. Now, I haven't heard that a ton in my time as a pastor, which is unfortunate. But when I have, there's one place I can give glory. Where is that? Jesus and his work by the Holy Spirit. The only way that happens is by the Holy Spirit. That what was dead can be made alive. What was broken can be fixed. We see this the best when conflict has occurred among us. It seems like the death of relationship, but what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is actually restoring. And any of you who have been married and made it through hard times of conflict in your marriage— What do you know after the fact that you are in greater intimacy with the person you just went through conflict with? See, the church wants to avoid conflict, but the reality is is that conflict is what is the wellspring that gives us greater intimacy because we start to understand and know one another better through experience. We start to listen to understand instead of listening to debate or listening to reply. When self-protection is our highest priority— our highest good, it will always lead to a broken relationship. But when we, as Paul prays for us, recognize the blessings that Christ has given us and that the Holy Spirit calls us to lay down our lives and our self-protection so that we might live for one another and work always towards reconciliation, like we read in 2 Corinthians, we get to experience the immeasurable greatness of his power of resurrection in those moments. If we don't have reconciliation in our midst, if we don't have the ups and downs and the brokenness and the good things that come from a relationship, dear church, we can talk all we want about resurrection at the end of days, but the words have no power. The reason I think that most of the world believes that God is dead is because I think that love is greatly dead in the midst of the church. They watch a consumeristic, individualistic church 
say, me, me, me. And they recognize because of the common grace wisdom that they've been given that we can't be serving the God that says, I will die for you, you, you. If we want our witness to be strong in the world, we have to put action to the words we believe. Our ability to experience these things has been given freely to us. We are the ones that can cause them to happen because we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so today, I, like Paul, pray, pray. I was on my face in the office, flat on the floor this week, for multiple hours praying for this body. And that's not to make me look good. It's just easier for a six foot 10 guy to pray lying down, right? (laughs) I was praying for hours that this body might know these things. Not just by mental assent, but by all of us choosing to lay down our lives for one another. Not because it feels right, not because our emotions tell us to, but because the God who loved us so deeply has a spirit within us that controls us. I pray that we would grow in our understanding of these blessings. The starting point for this is to cast our eyes upon Christ and see all that he has done to reconcile us to himself and to one another, but not to stop with just the positive feeling. We must endeavor to take part in the process of giving one another and helping anyone that comes into this church understand what it is to experience Christ, to experience the gift of the life of Christ, the experience of what hope looks like to a world that is broken, what the inheritance of eternity feels like, and what the power of God's transforming gospel does in the midst of a broken and fallen world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came as a baby wrapped in a manger so that we might experience the Father. And now, he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. He wants us to be the incarnate Spirit of God in the midst of a broken world. So this Christmas, I hope that we can be that church that shows the world what the Spirit in flesh looks like.